Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena, I hope you have had a great weekend or great day whenever it is that you're picking this up. I'm really excited to bring to you today a conversation that I had with Greg Potter. Now, Greg Potter, he's one of the most sought after consultants in the field of circadian rhythm, sleep and health. And he's a breadth of experience in nutrition, metabolism and exercise physiology. It was such a great conversation and we spoke on uh, chrononutrition, chronotype, the metabolic impact of sleep deprivation, interpersonal variation around that, and a whole host of other things. So, you know, Greg has such a range of experience in a number of areas. During his graduate and master's degree, he worked as a coach, personal trainer, and sports massage therapist, and spent much of his time helping improve the strength and power athletes. Um, between these degrees, he did an internship in the sports science and sports medicine department of the Rugby Football Union, helping with injury surveillance, concussion protocols and nutrition. You know, his academic background includes a BSc in sports and exercise science, master's degree in exercise physiology from Loughborough University, and then his PhD focused in on sleep, nutrition and metabolism. And that was at the University of Leeds. And this is where Greg now, you know, spends a lot of his time consulting with people and organizations. And he helps them optimize their health using the knowledge he's gained through both his academic and practical experience. He's also actually the co-founder and the chief science officer of Resilient Nutrition, and they produce a range of energy nut butters that help boost stamina, bolster your resilience, and keep you calm, alert, and focused. And if you go to Resilient Nuts website, you can actually download an awesome little handbook that Greg put together in and around nutrition philosophies and what to focus on for eating a healthy diet, um, which I had a look at the other evening, and it's a superb document, really easy to understand and easy to read and that is what you'll find as you listen to this conversation I have with Greg is that he's so experienced at putting that science into that practical knowledge that people can use. I caught up with Greg it was uh, morning time where he was in Sardinia which sounds amazing and it was just on the cusp of kind of going from fall into winter so I hope you enjoy this conversation I have with Greg Potter. Awesome. So we're live. Greg, um, I feel like, hello. Hi, Greg. How are you doing? <laughs> First of all, hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning for you. Do you <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, like I'm standing here. Uh, the light is very bright. We've got these ridiculous LED lights, which we both know are probably not the best thing for my sleep uh, because, mm. of course, it is 20 past eight. It's basically a cup of tea and almost bedtime for me. Um, and it's a bright light. I had coffee at like 2.30, 2.30 today. And as I was doing it, I felt guilty, Greg. It was kind <laughs> of like walking past your hairdresser with your hair in a mess, knowing that you had not made an appointment for like the last two months. 
and you just haven't gotten around to it. Because, of course, you, out of anyone, is going to probably tell me that we're going to discuss some of the things around sleep that might compromise like a, a decent night's sleep. And I bet you those two things that I just mentioned are probably high on your list of things to avoid. Possibly not ideal. Possibly not ideal. <laughs> I know. And I don't know about you, Greg, but, um, and we're going to talk about kind of your background and how you got into this and and, and your experience and, and things like that. But I do find not only the more that I learn, the 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 stupider I become, but also the worse it is because it's like knowledge is definitely power, but you also then when you do things that you know aren't great for you, you just have this kind of thing in the back of your head going, well, that was a bit dumb. Like, why are you doing what you're doing? Um, You must be the same given that your whole academic and your education and your postgraduate is around sleep, nutrition and metabolism. And now this is what you consult on. What are your habits like around, you know, your sleep routine and and do you practice what you preach, essentially? First, I completely agree with what you just said. And I know that I've improved my sleep over time. But as I learned how important sleep is for my health and performance, Mm. that knowledge started to lead me to put more pressure on myself to sleep well. And one of the frustrating things about sleep is that the more that you try to sleep well, the more elusive healthy sleep becomes. Mm. And it's really important when in a medium such as this, in which we discuss sleep, we try and share tips on how to sleep better, but do so in a way that doesn't make people more anxious about their sleep if they feel like they're currently sleeping poorly, because people need to understand that the occasional poor night of sleep isn't going to cripple them. With that said, in response to your actual question, I've changed quite a few things about my sleep over time. And I'd say that I do practice what I preach. But one of the things that I preach is that occasional deviations from Optima are fine. Mm. And so I try not to get too worked up about those deviations such as the ones that you mentioned today. And in terms of my own sleep routine, if you call it that, one thing I say is that healthy sleep starts during the daytime. Mm. And you mentioned caffeine there. For me personally, I've never had a genetics test done or anything like that, but I suspect that I metabolize caffeine quite slowly. Mm-hmm. And I'm also a morning lark. So I generally don't consume any caffeine after about 10 a.m. Mm. when people consume caffeine too late in the day it tends to shift their biological clock which influences various processes including the timing of sleep later and it also tends to reduce the depth of sleep and lead people to take longer to fall asleep so I try and minimize my caffeine intake and keep it early in the day I typically spend probably one to three hours outdoors in daylight on work days and at least four hours outside on non-work days during daylight (coughs) that's important to synchronizing our body's clocks with the 24-hour light dark cycle each day the most important time cue in that synchronization process seems to be our patterns of exposure to light and what's important to understand is that if you for example went into a cave 
in which you didn't know what time of day it was and there weren't any changes in light exposure and temperature, then what you'd find is that your body's clock doesn't tick at a pace of precisely 24 hours. And for that reason, it needs to be reset or synchronized each day with the 24-hour day. Mm. So lots of bright exposure to daylight is important to doing that. And then the corollary of that, of course, is that in the couple of hours before bedtime, you want to reduce our exposure to high-intensity light and particularly light that contains quite short wavelengths, which to us would appear as blue-green light. Although many lights that we see, LED lights and so on, do contain lots of those wavelengths. It's just that they might appear as white to us. Yeah. And then otherwise I do the basic things relatively well. So typically finish eating dinner maybe two and a half hours before bedtime. I try to stop working at least 45 minutes before bed, although sometimes I don't meet that target because I'm involved in an early stage startup and that's what life is like at the moment. I'm pretty vigilant about turning my phone off at least 30 minutes before bedtime. And it's important to unplug around this time for a few reasons, but with respect to phones and watching TV too, there are a few ways by which these can disrupt sleep. One is that we tend to lose track of time if we're scrolling through social media feeds or if autoplay is running on Netflix. Another is that the content that we're exposed to is often quite stimulating. Mm. If you're reading news about the latest developments in the COVID-19 pandemic, 15 minutes before bedtime, then that might make your brain start racing, which you probably don't want at that time. Mm. And another is the exposure to light from the devices. And for that reason, I have blue light filters on my laptop and my phone. And later in the day, I tend to reduce the brightness settings on those devices too. Always keep my phone out of my bedroom and I get my girlfriends to do the same, much to her dismay. And typically in the half hour or so before bed, I'll read a book, a paper book, and currently keeping a gratitude diary too, just as a little self-experiment, which I'm about a month into. And then in terms of my bedroom, I use a fan, which... Hmm. It's helpful for me because I'm a light sleeper and it helps drown out noises that might otherwise wake me up, but it also keeps me cool. Bedroom's very dark. We've got good shutters, which is ideal. And the only device in the bedroom is an alarm clock, but the alarm clock emits red light. So it doesn't tend to disrupt sleep quite as much. And another key thing that I practice is what's known as stimulus control of behavior. And this principle is relatively simple. It's just that certain stimuli predictably lead us to engage in certain behaviors. And the example I always use is that if you're driving and you're approaching a red light, then you'll reflexively start to slow down and brake. And what happens when people start to sleep poorly is that they'll often start to spend more time in bed awake, ruminating about various things, including the fact that they're struggling with their sleep. Mm. And over time, they can condition themselves to associate their beds, which are the stimuli, with 
being awake, which is the behavior. And so what they need to do is retrain themselves to associate their beds with being asleep. And what that entails is saving the bed for sex and sleep only, only going to bed when sleepy, as opposed to feeling like you have to be in bed by, for example, 10 p.m. each night. Mm. And then if you find yourself unable to sleep, or if you wake up during the sleep period and you can't get back to sleep, then if perhaps 15 minutes or so have passed, and I don't want you to watch the clock necessarily, mm. then you should get out of bed and do something relaxing in a different room, in dim lighting, until you are sleepy again. And examples of things that you could do include things like meditating and mm. reading. I tend to meditate in that particular circumstance. And I struggle with my sleep at times. I'm yeah. actually going through a bout of insomnia at the moment. And I always find it easy to fall asleep. But the more work that I have to do, the more that I find myself waking up during the night. And I just tend to wake up very early. I was awake today shortly before 4 a.m. Yeah. And I'm okay in those circumstances because I know how it affects me. Mm. And because the ways that it affects me are clear to me, I can then try to design my environment and so on such that I find it easier to do the things I want to do each day and easier to avoid engaging in unhealthy behaviors and so on. Yeah. And then in this particular type of context in which I'm not sleeping so well, I tend to double up on my mindfulness practice. I've been yeah. meditating for about six years and typically that entails 10 minutes each morning shortly after waking but when I'm struggling with my sleep I might insert an additional 10 minute meditation in the hour or so before bed yeah and I'd say that those are the core things that I focus on which have a meaningful effect on my sleep so I'm generally good at practicing what I preach but I'm also not so much for Nazi that if people want to go out for a drink every once in a while, I'm, I'm going to skip it because I'm concerned about my sleep. I think it's really important to recognize that numerous factors influence how we feel and function. Yeah. And those factors importantly include things like how connected we feel to others. And yeah. people shouldn't bypass social events and so on just so that they can try and prioritize their sleep and you see that commonly in people who have insomnia mm. they engage in these types of sleep protective behaviors when they'd be better off continuing to do those things that are important and accept things as they are and recognize that better sleep does await them they just yeah. need to be patient and focus on certain core behaviors to yeah. ride the wave of poor sleep that they're currently experiencing yeah great that was super comprehensive with regards to a lot of those factors which I've read in the literature and I've heard you discuss on uh, numerous podcasts as to you know how we might optimize the sleep and and I suppose just a few things which I I feel are kind of worth um, spending a little bit of, or not a little bit of time, but maybe just me repeating, um, is that exposure to the natural light in everyday life. And, you know, people think, and I, I'm not sure, and I know that you will know this, but just for the listener, um, the even if you're in an office and, or, and you've got these bright lights during the day and, you, you know, there's quite a lot of windows around so you, you are getting some natural light in. I've got this app on my phone that uh, a friend of mine, Jamie Scott, 
recommended downloading that shows what the different light intensities are. So it showed how, like, I think it's measured in, this is your area, not mine, but um, that the lux or the, the, the light intensity, and I, and I can't recall what that lux stands for, and I know that obviously you will know. Um, and it was many hundreds of times uh, lower inside even on a cloudy day. And then when you go outside and you measure that light intensity, it is just so much greater. And mm. as I understand it, like we just, as just the way that modern society um, just kind of works, it doesn't really lend itself to spending hours outside every day. And I mean, I guess, you know, some of us are fortunate to, to be able to, to have that, but for others, it's more about kind of taking those opportunities where you can to kind of get outside and get that natural light exposure and, and kind of entrain that uh, circadian rhythm, I, I suppose. Um, and I, yeah. yeah. And to pick up on a couple of things that you just mentioned there, people in industrialised societies spend on average something like 88% of their lives indoors nowadays. Mm. And as you alluded to, if you're in a brightly lit room, the intensity of light that you might be exposed to is perhaps a thousand lux or so. Mm. And in a dimly lit room, it might be more like 500. Whereas outdoors on a clear day in the middle of the day, it can be well over a hundred thousand lux. Wow. So two orders of magnitude, at least higher. Yeah. And that can have a potent effect on all sorts of things. So while daylight and patterns of light exposure are important to in training, synchronizing our body's clocks with the environment around us, light is also important to numerous other things. People recognize the importance of certain ultraviolet wavelengths in stimulating synthesis of vitamin D, but it's also clear that our patterns of exposure to light will also influence things like nitric oxide signaling in our bodies, which will influence blood pressure and so on. Light exposure might have some other roles in metabolic regulation. It's very important to mood as anybody who has seasonal affective disorder will recognize. And it's probably also important to vigilance and possibly to learning as well. Yeah. So light has many effects on our biology and concerningly, we are, of course, spending more time indoors nowadays than we once did. But at the same time, the intensity and pervasiveness of artificial light pollution at night mm. is increasing. So from 2012 to 2016, the area grew and intensified by just over 2% each mm. year. Mm. And Interestingly, there are some associations in the epidemiological literature between exposure to light at night and risk of various diseases, one of which is breast cancer. And I don't think these data are by any means conclusive, mm. but there are mechanistic reasons to think that artificial light at night is a plausible contributor to some of those diseases. And Greg, I think, was it you and, and Dr. Tommy Wood who recently wrote a, like a 
really nice review on the circadian rhythm and shift work and just the possible implications. And, and I know that people who are interested in health are likely familiar with the kind of the notion that the World Health Organization have deemed shift work to be kind of, it might be possibly cast, like, you know that they have those different kind of classifications, possibly carcinogenic, probably carcinogenic. To be honest, I can't remember which one they kind of, they, they, which classification they gave it, but is it that the, just the, the complete switch around of what we've kind of biologically or the biologically appropriate light pattern, if you like, um, that shift work is almost the opposite of, of what it should be. Is that some of the, the reasoning behind why it's just so detrimental to our health? Yeah, I think the shift work is quite a complex scenario. And obviously we can't really speak about shift work in very general terms because people work very different shifts. Mm. And the degree to which shift work is problematic depends on things like how somebody's chronotype whether they're more of an early bird or a night owl lines up with their shifts. Mm. So specifically people who work night shifts will be less negatively affected by working those night shifts if they feel that they are naturally night owls. Whereas the morning larks will feel worse during those night shifts. They'll perform worse. And over time that will increase their propensity to develop certain diseases. Mm. Now, with that said, if you think about shift work, then there are some occupational considerations which will affect somebody's risk of health problems. So many shift working jobs include certain occupational hazards, for example. And then there are some other socioeconomic considerations too. So perhaps some people who are working shifts are under more financial stress and they engage in lower paid jobs and so on. Mm. But if you put those factors aside, then the type of repeated disruption to biological rhythms and sleep that many shift workers experience likely influences their risk of various chronic diseases over time. Mm. And the way that I would frame it is that that type of disruption is likely to influence somebody's resilience. Yeah. And so if you, if you have somebody who's robust at baseline, then they'll probably cope relatively well with short periods of that over time. But if you have somebody who is predisposed to developing a certain disorder, whatever it might be, be it a cardiometabolic one or a mental health problem, then that type of constant disruption is likely to push somebody along the trajectory to developing one of those relevant disorders. But in terms of the mechanistic bases of how that type of biological clock disruption and sleep disruption affects people, there are numerous factors at play. And I'll just say that the epidemiology has shown quite clear associations between people engaging in shift work and risk of various diseases, including things like diabetes. Mm. But at the same time, when people have done controlled experiments in which the researchers disrupt their biological clocks by exposing them to, for example, changing light-dark cycles to which their body's clock 
clocks can't synchronize, you see rapid deterioration in everything from insulin sensitivity, which is an important determinant of glucoregulation and hence risk of diabetes, to blood pressure, which influences risk of diseases such as heart attacks, of course, and also markers of inflammation, which are involved in numerous cardiometabolic disorders. Mm. So both the epidemiological research and the experimental research strongly shows that that type of disruption is likely a core component of why shift workers are particularly at risk of various health problems. Yeah, super interesting. And, and picking up on what you were talking about with regards to resiliency and it's and potentially if someone is robust and they are, you know, they're not predisposed to certain conditions, potentially the impact of that disruption of circadian rhythm may not be as bad. Would is that the same for people who oh what I suppose what what effect would that resiliency have in everyday life for people? And I suppose like for example, in our house, like I am I am the one that's most sensitive to the bright lights that that you can see above me. And you know, having coffee at 2.30 for me is, you know, that's not something I would normally do because I know even though I am actually quite a fast metabolizer of caffeine, I I, I have my head had my genetic uh, sorry, I've had my genetics done and I know that to be true, it still does impact on me. And maybe it is because historically, like you mentioned with yourself, I have periods of of that kind of you know early awakening that which occurs when my mind is you know overactive if I'm busy at work and, and things like that. Yet, you know, my husband, he's absolutely fine with this type of light, doesn't really notice it. He can have an espresso at about 4:30. He can he goes into bed and then he catches up on the BBC sport and news. And then he puts <laughs> up his phone, he goes to sleep for like seven and a half hours, wakes up rinse and repeat so you know is there something about individual differences that we might miss and when we're looking at the data around sleep and and the the optimal kind of approach or is that an anomaly or is Baz like just fooling himself like like what do you see when you're working with people and talking to them about sleep do you see differences like that yeah I think there are very large differences between people and how they respond to these types of stresses. And there's a concept known as sleep reactivity that describes this. So somebody whose sleep isn't very reactive might be exposed to bright light late at night and consume caffeine too late in the day and experience lots of work-related stress and their sleep stays relatively stable. But if you look at people who have insomnia, then their sleep tends to be more reactive to these types of disruptors even when they're relatively minor mm. and I think that sleep reactivity is something that applies to many different types of disruptors but importantly just because somebody is very sensitive to one stimulus doesn't necessarily mean that they're sensitive to another stimulus so interesting if you look for example at how people's cognition changes in response to sleep loss you can have somebody whose attention is very negatively affected by a night of sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. But for that person, they might not experience the same types of decrements in their working memory. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And you mentioned light exposure. There's been some nice work from your side of the pond in recent years, and it's not really your side of the pond, but from Australia specifically, showing that there's enormous variation between people in the degree to which artificial light suppresses melatonin synthesis mm. and shifts circadian timing. And this work has some minor methodological issues with it. It's very important, for example, to control prior light exposure and this type of study. But it seems on the basis of that research that there seems to be something like 60-fold variation in the degree to which people are affected by light at night. Mm. So there are people like your husband who can get away with those types of behaviours and then there are people who are more like you and I. And then the other modifying variable is something that we mentioned earlier and, and that's knowledge and expectations of how those stimuli are going to disrupt us. And while I can't think of many very relevant studies on this particular subject, I can mention a couple that are related. One is that if you give people a standardized milkshake in one condition, you tell them that it's a very high calorie milkshake and it's high in sugar and so on, then you will change their physiological responses to consumption of that milkshake will influence things like their appetite regulation. Mm. In another quirky study, the experimenters had people who have diabetes come into the lab and they gave them a bolus of carbohydrate and then measured their blood sugar over time. And what they did is they changed subjects' perceptions of time. Mm -hmm. So in some instances, they felt like time was moving at a certain speed on the base of the clock that was in the room when the clock wasn't actually ticking at the correct speed. And they found that their blood sugar responses tracked their perceptions of time rather than actual time. Huh. And as one more example of this, which is probably more relevant, I haven't been able to dig out this study, but I remember coming across some work a few years ago, which showed that after people slept overnight in a sleep laboratory and had their sleep measured objectively using the gold standard method of assessing sleep when they were told that they slept poorly irrespective of how they actually slept their cognition was negatively affected so you could have somebody who objectively slept very well they had excellent sleep efficiency they had adequate time in bed their sleep duration was typical for them the simple act of telling them they slept poorly impaired their cognitive performance. Mm. So how we perceive these things is also very important to how we respond to them. And that's why it's important for you and I to not get too hung up about what we know and to, <laughs> to do things when possible that help us realize that and not to overemphasize minor disruptors and to try and be flexible in our lifestyles. One of the characteristics of good sleepers is that they are able to sleep at different times and maintain their sleep quality and so on. And if we become too rigid in our lifestyles, then that, that can actually start to work against us. There's a fine line between having regular habits, which are conducive to good health and a robust circadian system and so on, and being so rigid that minor disruptions 
to those habits cause us all sorts of problems. Yeah, super interesting. And and with regards to what you mentioned with kind of being told that you that you had a rubbish night's sleep when subjectively you felt like you had a good sleep just takes me uh, directly to like the kind of proliferation of the sleep trackers that are now, you know, available on your Garmin, on your Apple Watch, you know, Fitbit, Aura Ring, Whoop. And don't get me wrong, I would love an Aura Ring because I think that I'm just fascinated by the by the data. I wouldn't necessarily probably do anything about it though. So this is one of the reasons why I'm not forking out a gazillion dollars to get one. But Greg, do you think that they'll ever be in a position to to adequately give us data with which is going to be meaningful? Do you think that they can potentially I don't know, be uh, uh, more harm than good for some people. I'm sure they can be just based on what you talked about with regards to that subjective versus kind of objective sleep data. But I just can't see how a tracker like that will ever be as accurate as, you know, going into a sleep laboratory. But maybe it doesn't even need to be. What are your thoughts on those sleep trackers? Do you wear one? Do you have an investment in a company that that does one? What where, where, What's your stance? So I'm not an investor in any of those companies. Yeah. I do wear one, mm-hmm. but I don't I don't wear it during sleep. And the reasons for that are several fold, but for somebody with my particular phenotype who can feel at times a bit worked up about how I'm sleeping, mm-hmm. I don't think that having something which is constantly tracking my sleep and then spending lots of time looking at those data is necessarily conducive to my psychological health. And to me sleeping better. Yeah. I wear it because it increases the salience of relative health behaviours. Yeah. So specifically when people wear activity trackers, they tend to engage in a bit more physical activity. They take more steps each day and they might slightly boost their moderate to vigorous physical activity, which is, of course, very important to all facets of health. Mm-hmm. And with that said, if you look at the current devices that are on the market, they I think increasingly effectively monitor sleep Mm -hmm. and it's difficult to know the validity of the devices when the algorithms and so on are constantly being updated. Scientific studies take some time to undergo peer review and be published. And by the time they come out, the manufacturers have likely either released the new model entirely of the relevant tracker, Mm. or they've updated the algorithms that are running on the hardware and the results of the study might no longer hold. In general, the trackers tend to be quite good at estimating sleep duration Mm. and overall sleep timing. And these are important because when you think about sleep health, there are several different dimensions of it. Those include things like how long we're sleeping, sleep Mm. quality, which is a little harder to assess, but that comprises both subjective sleep quality, so how restorative we feel our sleep is but then some objective metrics too such as sleep latency how long it takes us to fall asleep once we've started trying to fall asleep and once we switched off but then also sleep efficiency which is the proportion of time in bed that we're actually asleep Mm. then there is sleep timing there are quite strong associations between chronotype and various health behaviors and health outcomes such that later chronotypes tend to engage in less healthy behaviours. So their rates of substance abuse are higher, for instance, 
And that includes things like alcohol consumption, smoking, their diet quality might be a bit poorer and their cardiometabolic health and mental health tends to be a bit worse. So sleep timing is important too. And then there's the variability of those different constructs too. And the variability of sleep timing, for instance, is somewhat predictive of numerous health outcomes. And importantly, all of those different dimensions that I just mentioned do also predict all-cause mortality to varying degrees. So those are very important to our overall health. And if you have a sleep tracker that can accurately assess some of those and display the the data in a way that helps people improve on the relevant parameter, then that would likely help somebody. But one of the issues, in my mind at least, is that I don't think that many manufacturers have done a good job of displaying the data and giving recommendations in a way that's personalized to the individual to help them in the context of their daily lives. Now, with that said, what I'll add is that the devices seem to be increasingly good at assessing sleep. Mm-hmm. And there have been a couple of papers published recently on the WHOOP strap, for example, mm-hmm. that have shown that compared to polysomnography, the gold standard measure of sleep, the WHOOP devices seem to be relatively good at assessing sleep duration, but also the different stage of sleep. Mm. So there is broadly non-REM sleep and REM sleep, and REM sleep is that stage in which we dream. And we go through cycles of these different stages approximately every 90 minutes or so during consolidated sleep over the course of the night. And these different stages appear to be important to different biological processes. So, for example, during non-REM sleep and during the deeper stage of that sleep specifically, our bodies tend to synthesize the majority of growth hormone that we produce, which is important to the restoration of connective tissues and so on. Mm. It's also very important to the consolidation of memories, and it's during non-REM sleep that the lymphatic system in the brain changes its morphology such that fluid can wash away debris and metabolic byproducts that have accumulated during the day during wakeful activity in order to restore our brains ahead of the next day. Mm. REM sleep conversely seems to be very important to things like emotion regulation, cardiovascular health, and interestingly, humans probably have the highest proportion of REM sleep of all the different primates. And it's thought that REM sleep might have contributed to the development of our relatively high intelligence over time. But the knowledge of your sleep stages might not actually be that helpful. Mm. I understand that if, for example, the duration and intensity of somebody's slow wave sleep declines precipitously over time, then that's going to influence their risk of certain chronic diseases, such as neurodegenerative diseases. And for that reason, if you can do things to improve their slow wave sleep, then you can potentially mitigate their risk of those diseases. Mm. But I, I think that that's probably something which will be increasingly relevant over time. And right now, if somebody's getting hung up because their aura ring says that they're only spending 7% of their sleep time in REM sleep, then 
that type of feedback might lead them to engage in behaviors that aren't actually healthy or it might lead them to have what's become known as orthosomnia basically in recent years there's an increasing large number of people turning up at sleep centers with self-diagnosed sleep problems on the base of the data that are coming from their activity monitors when on additional objective analysis their sleep's absolutely fine interesting so i think that these types of devices will be increasingly helpful Mm -hmm. as they become more accurate as the quality and the timing of the recommendations that they provide becomes more personalized and better. But right now, it's very rare that I pay too much attention to those devices when helping people with their sleep. And I'm much more likely to use an old-fashioned sleep diary. And with insomnia patients, for example, I tend to use the consensus sleep diary. And one of the nice things about these types of diaries is that they give information about many different facets of sleep health. So whereas these trackers tend to be good at focusing on sleep duration, for instance, they're not so good at assessing somebody's subjective sleep quality, whereas you can get that through a sleep diary. And if you create spreadsheets and so on based on the data coming from the diaries, then you can analyze all these different dimensions of sleep health Mm. and, and work out whether the interventions that you are providing to improve somebody's sleep are having the positive effect that you intend over time. Mm. So just to summarize all of that, I think that the devices are helpful, but I generally use them to pay attention to physical activity and sometimes to some cardiovascular health measures such as resting heart rate or resting pulse rate or pulse rate variability And if you monitor the trends in those things over time, then that can indicate when somebody's allostatic load, the total duress that they're under is exceeding their capacity to cope with that. Mm. But I rarely put much stock in the sleep data. And more often than not, when people come knocking on my door about their sleep problems, they're very concerned about the data that they're getting from these devices. And one of the first things I say is, just take it off for the few weeks that we're working together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Greg, when you talk about relative risk of disease, what evidence do we have that the relative risk is, is, you know, really meaningful? And I suppose I ask that from a, I suppose, with my nutrition mind and my nutrition background, um, it's quite... I'm going to say well-established, but only in with the, you know, in my little bubble, if you like, that the epidemiological data with which, you know, we build public policy from and we make recommendations and you get clickbait headlines around tends to be pretty poor when you think about relative risk and disease risk with regards to nutrition, because those numbers, you know, when we're speaking relative risk and something is 20% increased risk of, say, um, bowel cancer because you're eating red meat, but if you actually look at the absolute values, the risk is still incredibly minimal. So, you know, what is the magnitude of risk when we're thinking about sleep loss and and, um, uh, over time and disease risk? I think you make really good points there. And that conflation between relative risk and absolute risk is so common. 
And I think sometimes there's actually a bit of disinformation on the part of bodies such as pharmaceutical companies who conflate the two and then make their drugs in this instance seem far more efficacious and potentially useful than they actually are. With that said, the estimates of things like relative risk Mm. or odds ratios, of course, vary according to the studies that you're looking at. And one of the issues with epidemiology is that it's so difficult to adjust for all the different confounders that influence somebody's relative risk of a given disease on the basis of some sort of input variable like sleep duration. And so when looking at these subjects, it's often helpful to look at the experimental interventions that can more tightly control for some of these confounding variables. And on the subject that you just mentioned, there was a systematic review published last year looking at the metabolic effects of sleep restriction, mm-hmm. including on things like the number of calories that people consume. And they looked at 41 different randomized controlled trials. And the outcomes of these studies included things like hunger and various appetite regulating hormones, how the patterns of activity in the brain change in response to sleep loss, but then also energy balance. So how many calories people consume, how many calories they burn each day, changes in body weight and changes in insulin sensitivity in response to sleep restriction. And what they found, unsurprisingly, is that the sleep loss increased people's perceptions of hunger, and it also correspondingly changed their actual energy intake Mm. to the tune of something like 250 calories each day. So after not getting enough sleep, people consume 250 calories more each day. And within a short period of time, that led to measurable weight gain because sleep loss doesn't seem to acutely influence energy expenditure much. So if energy intake is increasing, then that tips the energy balance scale in the direction of weight gain. And then also sleep restriction, reduced insulin sensitivity. And interestingly, these changes don't seem to reflect appetite hormones so much as they do changes in patterns of activity in the brain. So Mm -hmm. specifically, people tend to be more impulsive around very palatable foods, Mm -hmm. which relates to changes in patterns of electrical activity in brain regions that relate to things like motivation and reward. So it's it's difficult to put clear numbers on these things. And I recognize also that these types of studies have stark limitations. Mm. They're not ecologically valid in in the real world. We're not living in a laboratory room in which we're presented with food and are allowed to eat that food ad libitum. And for that reason, we also need to bear those limitations in mind. But I think that when you put the epidemiology next to the experimental research, that there's strong reason to think that these things are problematic. And the point is that while from one day to the next, small changes in things like energy balance are practically meaningless. As those accumulate over time, they can amount to something which is meaningful. And that comes back to something which we discussed briefly earlier, which is that people shouldn't get hung up about occasional lapses in their health behaviours, but 
when these negative health behaviors become ingrained and become too frequent, that's when problems arise. And of course, all of this is dependent on somebody's genetic disposition to develop a particular disease. So there are some people who seem to cope relatively well with poor sleep. And there are genetic differences between how much sleep each of us needs. Interestingly, the shorter sleepers need five and a half to six hours each night, which is probably more sleep than a lot of people would have expected. Mm. So even at that end of the spectrum, people do need a substantial amount of sleep each night. Yeah. But it could be that some of us can experience long periods of poor sleep and the effect on our risk of diabetes and heart disease and obesity is very small. Whereas for other people, there can be a really large effect. And Ezra Desali's done some nice work on that, looking at those types of inter-individual differences, showing that they seem to be trait-like. So if you restrict how much time in bed somebody has and thereby shorten their sleep, and then you repeat that same intervention months later, how it influences them is stable over time. So there are some people who are massively overindulged in response to sleep loss. Yeah. And there are other people who, are, who will undereat, but on average, people tend to overeat a bit. Yeah. So I think that with all of that said, it's important for us to recognize and learn more about ourselves and how things like sleep disruption influence us over time so that we can then modify modify our environments and so on to buffer against the things that we suspect we are most vulnerable to in response to those types of disruptions absolutely and and i mean a couple of those things that um you mentioned immediately made me think that and i speak to clients about this as well is that you know if you do have a night of rubbish sleep but you're aware of the things that you just talked about like a reduced insulin sensitivity changes in that feedback reward system in your brain, much more likely to overeat hyperpalatable foods. And kind of, if you're aware of that, then setting up something on a day after a poor night of sleep where you focus on getting a good protein intake, you minimize your intake of the processed refined foods and carbohydrate if that's what you, you know, you, you tend to eat you might do some, you know, additional physical activity and, and actually be quite disciplined around that stuff that might mitigate some of those short-term changes which then progress to those disease states that that are associated with loss of loss of sleep. I, is that something that you discuss with your clients, Greg? Is that, you know, the, the type of advice you might give someone? With clients, people are generally interested in improving their sleep and just focusing on that certainly initially and I don't want to overwhelm people when I work with them Mm. and whenever you're thinking about behavior change there are numerous different factors to consider but broadly I think about making changes which are a actually doable for the individual be likely to have a substantial effect on the relevant outcome and then see are likely to have some positive knock-on effects on other health behaviors and outcomes. Mm. And so I generally introduce those in a stepwise fashion and make changes that almost seem too small initially, but then 
as that relationship is built and as their sleep starts to improve, I might then start to focus on some of these things. So if somebody comes to me and their sleep is just really bad, then I probably won't focus too much on their nutrition outside of things that are obviously disruptors like consuming large amounts of alcohol late in the day, consuming caffeine too late in the day and so on. However, if somebody has their ducks in a row and they have the occasional poor night of sleep, then I think that there are various different things that they can do to better cope with that poor sleep. And I know that I myself do some of these things. You mentioned then, for example, that you might change your carbohydrate intake knowing that your oral glucose tolerance is going to be worse after a night of poor sleep. That's something that I do. I tend to reduce my carbohydrate intake. I tend to consume slightly less energy in total, mm-hmm. knowing that the nutrients that I consume are less likely to be partitioned into fat-free mass, so muscle and bone and so on, and more likely to be shuttled to adipose tissue after sleep loss. And then there are the obvious things that people can do. So if somebody is a regular napper or a good sleeper, I think that napping can be helpful, particularly if there's something important coming up. So if you're an athlete and you're competing in the evening and you've had a very poor night's sleep the night before the competition because you're ruminating about the next day, then a midday nap is a really obvious way to potentially improve your performance. And naps have been shown to improve everything from memory formation to how effectively we learn new things. So when we nap, we actually free space in the brain Mm. to learn new things. They can boost immune function and they can also potentially enhance exercise performance after insufficient sleep. So napping is one of those. And then there are some other things that you can do too. So physical activity can be really helpful. And obviously it tends to boost mood, which can be negatively affected by poor sleep, but it also tends to enhance brain function in general. And so if you're at work that day and and you've not had enough sleep the night before, then making sure that you intersperse periods of physical activity during the day can help you stay on task and accomplish more at work and be more productive. Lots of exposure to high intensity, short wavelength light can also support cognition after sleep loss. And then there are some more novel interventions that people may benefit from. And obviously a lot of people gravitate to the likes of caffeine after poor sleep. The problem with that is that it could perpetuate some sleep issues over time. Of the different things that people can do with their nutrition to help them cope with sleep loss, I really like consuming creatine monohydrate. Mm. I've spoken about this a few times before, but when people think about creatine monohydrate, they think about exercise performance for the most part. And obviously regular consumption of creatine monohydrate tends to boost intramuscular phosphocreatine stores and thereby enhance everything from sprint performance to adaptations to strength training. It tends to improve muscle glycogen synthesis. It tends to boost the total amount of work done in a given session. It might have some effects on thermoregulation, but it also influences the brain. Our brains, of course, have their own phosphocreatine stores. And when you consume creatine, you can potentially saturate these stores. And this is more likely to be the case if you don't consume that much dietary protein because creatine is made up of 
some amino acids. Mm. And so it's likely that the vegans and vegetarians of the world on lower protein diets will benefit more from creating supplementation than the omnivores of the world or even the carnivores, God mm. forbid. And interestingly, when people are awake, their brains, of course, rely on ATP for energy. And that ATP is broken down over the course of the waking day. And free adenosine accumulates in the extracellular fluid of the brain. And this then, through numerous mechanisms, influences sleep propensity, such that the greater the buildup of the adenosine in the brain, the more sleepy we feel. Mm. And that's sometimes known as sleep pressure or sleep homeostasis. If your phosphocreatine stores are higher, then you can potentially mitigate that accumulation of adenosine because you'll be able to phosphorylate more of the adenosine using phosphate groups from the phosphocreatine. And so you can potentially reduce that buildup of sleep pressure over time and thereby support your alertness. And there have been a few studies looking at the effects of creatine consumption on different performance outcomes during sleep loss. So one of these was done on rugby players, for instance, and mm. a guy named Christian Cook did some work having people undergo a, a passing test, so a test of sport-specific skill. Mm -hmm. And they restricted how much sleep the players had. And then shortly before several trials, the players consumed one of several interventions. So either a placebo or some caffeine or some creatine. And they found that the reduction in skill performance was offset by creatine consumption. Caffeine did something similar, but caffeine also boosted salivary cortisol levels. And that's a proxy of stress. And you probably don't want to produce too, too much cortisol over, over time if you value your health and how you feel. Mm. So in a way, it seems that creatine can have some similar effects to caffeine during conditions of insufficient sleep, but whereas very high caffeine consumption may have some negative effects in the long term, when people consume creatine for weeks or months, it tends to have all sorts of beneficial effects on their health as well as their performance. Mm. And so I think that simply consuming something like 0.1 grams per kilo of body weight. So if you were a 70 kilo female, then if you consume seven grams of creatine with your breakfast during those times when you've slept poorly, you might be able to support both your physical and mental performance during that tricky time. Mm. Super interesting. I did hear you talk about that on another podcast and um, I've just started taking creatine over the last few weeks uh, for its, um, I'm going to say performance benefits. I'm no athlete. Well, no, I am an athlete, but I'm not like, you know, awesome. Well, no, I am quite awesome. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like strength condition awesome. Anyway, I'll move on. Um, um, so I've started taking it for that, but also it's antioxidant properties as well, because as I understand it, it's been beginning to be, it's emerging of how important it is for potentially preserving executive function in the brain, which I don't know if it's the same mechanism with which you're talking about, 
probably because it's that um, production of ATP. Um, so I've I've started taking creatine, and then I did hear you talk about it on another podcast that it could be beneficial in these times of sleep loss. Um, yeah, and there have been a couple of studies looking at creatine and cognition too. Yeah, and like many purported nootropics or compounds that enhance brain health and function, I think you're most likely to see beneficial effects of consumption of these substances on performance when somebody is under the cosh. So in conditions of sleep restriction or sleep deprivation, Mm. creatine is likely to have a relatively larger effect. Mm. And there are some other compounds that that could be complementary, but it's interesting that you mentioned antioxidation there, because like you say, creatine has some antioxidant-like effects, but one of the things that happens when we undergo sleep loss is oxidative stress increases. So with wakeful activities each day, obviously we're exposed to numerous pathogens and so on, but different metabolic reactions that are occurring at accelerated rates will increase the formation of reactive oxygen species and thereby incite oxidative damage. Mm. And there's been some very interesting preclinical research in the last couple of years, looking at the effects of prolonged sleep deprivation on oxidative stress in non-human animals, so in flies and mice specifically, Mm. And in a study published last year, the researchers then looked at what happens when you counter that increase in oxidative stress, which seems to particularly occur in the gut, at least in rodents. Mm. And when they supplemented with antioxidants, they offset the lifespan reducing effects of prolonged sleep deprivation. Mm. So they looked at a library of different antioxidants. They found that some of them had no effects, but more than 10 of them did have effects. And when they then gave the mice antioxidants, including everything from melatonin to resveratrol to quercetin, mm. they found that the mice, even under these conditions of prolonged sleep deprivation, had relatively normal lifespans. Mm. So one of the other things that I hypothesize will positively affect health and function during disrupted sleep is antioxidant consumption and it's difficult to forecast what the best way to go about that in humans might be but certainly sticking to an antioxidant rich diet comprising lots of colorful fruits and vegetables seems like a pretty good idea particularly under these conditions of sleep loss and i just suspect that high doses of antioxidants might have some slightly alerting effects that can help mitigate some of the damage that's incited by sleep loss in tissues such as the brain. Yeah, super interesting. And, and with that, of course, if you think about if I, and I mean, you're the expert and I've only kind of briefly looked at the data um, for whatever reason, but if you if I'm looking at an older population, it appears that they sleep less as well. And then if you've got, if you add creatine to the mix and it helps improve executive function, I know I'm just thinking, you know, maybe it's kind of if they slept to the same extent that they potentially would, then maybe would creatine even be as important? I don't know. I'm just thinking about how I'm kind of yeah, going the, tangent here. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an interesting tangent. That's the important mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> what I'll add is that, and you probably heard me mention this previously, but there's been some preclinical research looking at the effects of adding creatine monohydrates to the chow of rodents over several weeks. Mm. And it's shown that when you do that, 
you have some similar effects on their sleep to if you'd added caffeine. So specifically, they tend to sleep less. They spend less time in the deeper stage of sleep and the intensity of their deeper sleep is also reduced. And the reason relates to what I mentioned previously, namely that creatine can offset the accumulation of adenosine in the brain, Mm. which is particularly important to increasing slow wave activity, which occurs primarily during the deeper stage of sleep. Mm. However, if you had those effects on sleep through other means, you'd expect that to have negative health consequences. Yeah. As I mentioned previously, when you restrict somebody's sleep, you have all these different knock-on effects on things like how much food they consume, their insulin sensitivity, and so on. But when you give animals, including humans, creatine supplementation in the long term, you tend to see improvements in practically all the different health and performance outcomes that might be of interest. So it's difficult to reconcile those two things, but I think that it might be that if you gave elderly people creatine supplementation, you you might not improve how their sleep appears looking at a polysomnogram. You might actually make their sleep appear slightly worse, Mm. but I also think that you're gonna have positive effects on their health. And they might need slightly higher doses than younger people. They seem to under, undergo what's known as anabolic resistance with aging. And one thing that I'll add is that I don't think that you'll see the same effects on sleep in humans as you will in rodents because creatine supplementation has a much larger relative effect on brain phosphocreatine in rodents than it does in humans. Mm-hmm. As in you can potentially roughly double the amount of phosphocreatine in a rat's brain after supplementation, but you can't have such a big effect on a human. However, I just think that if that study had been done, which to my knowledge it hasn't, you would see some change in sleep architecture, which might cause some doctors and sleep medicine specialists to think that somebody's sleep is deteriorating, but then you'd actually find that that person was faring better than they otherwise would have. Mm. And instance in which putting too much stock in the data that you're getting from different sleep tracking devices can lead to conclusions that are ultimately not helpful. Yeah, interesting. And, and with regards to creatine, of course, when you look at the, the directions of when to take it, it's solely obviously coming from the, the, the point of kind of saturating your um, your mm-hmm. tissue levels, and they didn't talk about they don't talk about timing of creatine, um, but you just mentioned before that it's best to take in the morning. Which just I mean that's when I would take mine because it's part of a pre workout which has a ridiculous amount of caffeine in it. Um, boom, <laughs> I have a really good morning actually because of this. Um, and uh, but clearly that's not the with the mechanism with which you describe. If it has a similar action to caffeine probably not the best idea to take it in the evening time? Probably not. And that study hasn't been done, but mechanistically that makes sense. And I don't think that the timing of creatine supplementation relative to training is particularly important. Jose Antonio published a study a few years ago that suggested that it might have some small bearing on adaptations to resistance training. But if you look at the data in the paper and then use the data to calculate the effect size, then it's practically meaningless. 
So I'm, I'm not concerned about that. And as you mentioned, the important thing is saturating stores, which is going to happen over time, provided that somebody consumes it regularly. And you probably don't want to consume too much in one dose just because it does have osmotic properties. And when people consume large quantities of creatine, they, they can therefore experience some gastrointestinal distress. So I mentioned 0.1 grams per kilo. I think that's generally fine, but some people might need to split that into two doses, in which case I would just split it into doses with the first couple of meals of the day. Yeah, nice. Now, Greg, a couple of things you mentioned. Um, you talked about that napping might be a good idea. And um, what's your recommendations around napping? And I always, and I do get asked this by um, some of my students when I lecture to them about sleep and health and things like this. And I just kind of off, off about, you know, well, you know, maybe 20 minutes or maybe a, a sleep cycle, which might not actually be, you know, that that's just me just kind of talking. What is your recommendation around napping and how close to bedtime can someone kind of feasibly get away with napping without um, uh, interrupting their next night's sleep? Answering the first question, the last question first, I would say that it's difficult to give precise recommendations, but if somebody naps regularly, then napping is less likely to disrupt their sleep that evening. So I mentioned earlier that one of the determinants of how we sleep is the amount of sleep pressure that we build during the day. And when we nap, we pay off some of that sleep pressure, which is thereby likely to make it take us longer to fall asleep that evening, but also reduce the depth of sleep and perhaps lead to sleep fragmentation if we don't regularly nap. But in countries that are relatively hot where people nap regularly. If they take a siesta, for instance, then napping is probably less likely to disrupt their sleep. Mm. As a rule of thumb, I generally suggest not napping any later than about six hours before planned bedtime. And obviously the longer the nap, the more likely it is to disrupt sleep that evening because the more you'll pay off any sleep pressure that's accumulated previously. Mm. In terms of general napping strategies, I think... For the most part, the best time to nap is around that so-called post-lunch slump that occurs in the middle of the day. And the reason for this particular slump is just that our body's clocks influence the drive in our bodies for us to stay awake each day. So if you think that from the moment you wake each day, the pressure for you to sleep is accumulating the longer you've been awake, then your body needs to force to counter that accumulating sleep pressure. And this comes from the body clock regulation of alertness, but it doesn't rise monotonically over the course of the day. Interestingly, there's a temporary dip in this alertness drive around lunchtime, which causes that so-called post-lunch slump. Mm. So that's the time at which to nap. And the reason for this is probably an evolutionary one, just that if you think about when we're most vulnerable to damaging rays from the sun then it's going to be around the hottest time of day Mm. so it would make sense for us evolutionarily to escape from light at that time of day so i think that's probably the time of day at which to nap and for a lot of people it's going to be around 3 p.m and if you're going to have a nap and you want a short-term boost in alertness then you probably want something like 10 minutes of sleep However, if you want a a longer term boost in alertness, then you probably want to enter some of the deeper stage of sleep, which you'll only enter if you take a longer nap. 
the issue with that, as I mentioned, is that the longer the nap, the more it's likely to disrupt sleep that evening. So it really depends on what your goal is. If you're a shift worker and you've got a night shift coming up that starts at 6 p.m., then you might want to have a longer nap before it. Another way that you can have a stronger effect on your alertness is by having a so-called caffeine nap. Yes. So if you have caffeine too long before the nap, then you'll impair your ability to fall asleep during the nap opportunity. But if you consume some caffeine immediately before a nap of 10 minutes or so, then you'll have a, a twofold boost in alertness by way of the reduction in adenosine in the brain from the nap, but also the fact that caffeine antagonizes adenosine receptors. So there's, there's less noise from the adenosine, but also the ears don't hear the noise as well, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's been shown to additively reduce sleepiness. And it's also been studied in the context of things like driving performance during simulated driving. So if you're somebody who's at the wheel during a very long drive and you have to get somewhere for a certain time and therefore, for instance, need to drive through the night, then a caffeine nap can make sure that you stay alive. So there are times and places for that type of approach. Another interesting strategy is, is an exercise nap. Mm. There was some work published this year showing that when people exercise before a nap, they'll experience greater memory improvements as a result of that combination than they would from the nap alone. Mm. And it's difficult to tell what would be optimal in that case, but I think that the exercise intervention was about 40 minutes long in that particular study. And then the nap was longer than what I just recommended. I think they had 60 minutes in which to nap. So if you are a student studying and you regularly nap, then timing your nap shortly after a bout of exercise might help you learn the material. And the nap will also, as I mentioned earlier, free space for you to learn new things. Because what happens is that as we navigate the world each day, various different connections in inverted commas in our brains strengthen and the issue with that is that it requires energy but it also saturates our ability to continue to learn mm. but then when we sleep we selectively reduce the strength of some of those connections and only maintain the connections that we actually need in order to hold on to information that's pertinent thereby boosting energy in the brain and freeing space to learn new things and then the one other context in which napping is often very helpful is during travel. So think of jet lag. Mm. If I was going to fly and see you, Mickey, in New Zealand, then I'd probably want to have a nap on the plane. And if I did so, then just reclining my seat would definitely help. Mm-hmm. And it's been shown to prolong sleep duration during those types of conditions mm. and also improve sleep quality, which is probably just re- reflected or related to the fact that easier to hold your head in a comfortable position Mm. but simply lying down does have quite potent effects on activity in the autonomic nervous system so just lying down will reduce sympathetic outflow for example and that will help somebody switch off and fall asleep awesome and i've got to say um i love the idea of the caffeine nap i have heard that before um Mm. the exercise nap that's like combining two of my favorite things so Mm -hmm. That is awesome. And your idea of like 
reclining your chair in the air in the uh, plane, all I'm thinking is that person behind you is going to be really annoyed because <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot of room down there in uh, economy. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're great. it's such a great point, particularly that head position. We were away in the weekend and driving back in, in the camper and I was like dozing and I'm like, I'm feeling really comfortable until, of course, my head kind of like I just about fall asleep and then my neck crooks. I'm like, oh, no, that's right. That is actually super uncomfortable. <laughs> You've been super generous with your time. and I, But I really want to ask you this last question, which um, hopefully will be quick fire for you. Um, it doesn't need to be from my end, but I appreciate, you know, you're, you know, you're in Sardinia, Italy. You've probably got houses to renovate and markets to visit. Um, sleep supplements so some context i have like magnesium ashwagandha phosphatidylserine what else ah oh, holy basil and and i take any cup i you typically take ashwagandha and magnesium the other two i'm a little bit you know sometimes i take them sometimes i don't but if i'm honest the thing that is a real game changer for me is actually when i wear my blue light blocking glasses for the last hour before bed regardless of the supplements it always improves my sleep mm -hmm. do you have any um sleep supplements that you swear by that you recommend or you see like a large proportion of people benefit from um magnesium with my clients tends to be quite a game changer but i'm not sure what you see with with your people so i'll preface this by saying that i don't recommend sleep supplements particularly frequently mm. but but i do think that they have a place it's just not where I start with people. Yeah. The behavioral stuff is generally much more important. Yeah. Now, with that said, the important thing to consider is somebody's phenotype. People have sleep difficulties for numerous reasons. Yeah. Some people are worriers. And for that reason, if you give them something that helps reduce their pre-sleep anxiety, then you'll help them fall asleep. Yeah. Some people who are elderly, for example, might synthesize less melatonin, which is important to synchronizing the different molecular clocks in our cells, but also has some bearing on sleep propensity. And for those people, time-release melatonin can be quite helpful. Mm -hmm. Some people struggle with their sleep because of pain. And there are some additional circumstances that can disrupt sleep too. So, for example, one of them is jet lag. Yeah. So... I think people shouldn't speak in generalities when discussing sleep supplements, but instead start with what's causing the sleep disturbance. Mm. With that said, some of the things that I have recommended include things such as time-release melatonin for somebody who's struggling to sleep through the night. So you've got that elderly person and their sleep is fragmenting over time. And I think a couple of milligrams of time-release melatonin, there's a product named Restwell, which includes a type of melatonin named microactive melatonin can be helpful and high doses of melatonin might also have some positive effects on some cardiometabolic health parameters, including things like glucoregulation, mm. particularly if somebody's metabolic health at baseline isn't very good. Mm. They could also be very helpful in some diseases such as cancer. So I think that time-release melatonin has its place. What, sorry, if, what is a high dose of melatonin? I so 
if somebody's using time release melatonin and the research on that so far is generally used two or three milligrams and so okay. i'd start there but if somebody wanted to use melatonin for those cardiometabolic effects that i just mentioned mm. and i don't see much downside to trying melatonin the safety profile is excellent so even though it's regulated in some com- in some countries mm. i think that it's very safe mm. if somebody wanted to try that then i think the sweet spot is probably five to 10 milligrams, okay. but I'd use five to 10 milligrams of regular melatonin. Yeah. And in both cases, I'd take the melatonin 30 minutes to an hour before bed. Okay. So you could try that. Regular melatonin is particularly helpful for jet lag. Mm. And for jet lag, I think that a dose of around one milligram is probably about right. The reason that melatonin is helpful for jet lag is that it acts on a couple of receptors in human tissues and by acting on those receptors in a part of the brain, it can help shift circadian phase and circadian phase is just the timing of somebody's body clock, which influences things like when they feel sleepy. And I can't give general recommendations about when to take melatonin during jet lag, but there is a website named jetlagrooster.com that will give personalized guidance on when to take melatonin. And I think one milligram of melatonin is where I'd start during that particular circumstance. Then otherwise for people who have anxiety related sleep issues, I think that L-theanine is potentially helpful. And there was a systematic review published recently showing that 200 to 400 milligrams of L-theanine per day tends to reduce stress and related stress hormones and it's got an excellent safety profile so i think taking that about an hour or so before bed makes a lot of sense for some people and i'd start at the low end of that range 200 milligrams probably using some theanine which is the best studied form of l-theanine it's just a synthetic form that's Mm. particularly pure but there is a massive discrepancy between the price of some theanine and regular l-theanine when in reality they're probably exactly the same in most instances otherwise for anxiety some people swear by lavender and Mm. there's a particular brand named selexan s-i-l-e-x-a-n which has been well studied dose is normally 80 to 160 milligrams again about an hour before bed i would generally recommend that people try it as an aromatherapy first there's a little bit of evidence suggesting that it might be more efficacious if somebody just keeps it by the bedside as opposed to consuming it orally Mm. in which case you just want some 100% lavender oil by the bedside Mm. and otherwise for anxiety KSM 66 ashwagandha might be helpful all the studies or almost all the studies on KSM 66 have used two doses of 300 milligrams a day Mm. ashwagandha is just an Ayurvedic herb that's been used for millennia in the east for numerous different reasons but it's generally considered to be an adaptogen or something that helps people better cope with stressors and the nice thing about ashwagandha is that it probably has a bunch of other positive effects on things like adaptations to exercise training possibly metabolic health too Mm. so i don't hesitate to recommend trying that i doubt that it's the most potent sleep aid but you can give that a go and then for people who have pain i think that the most interesting supplement i've come across is pea 
mm. phosphatidyl ethanolamide. And there's a particular form, well, I, I think there are probably multiple forms, but one of the issues with PEA is that it's not particularly soluble. And if you bind it to phospholipids, then you can improve its solubility and improve the entry or the uptake of PEA into the blood and, and hence the body's tissues too. And it's a cannabinoid that seems to reduce anxiety, but possibly has quite potent effects on pain in certain syndromes. And there's been a bit of work recently suggesting that it can thereby help people who have pain sleep better. So for those people, 600 milligrams of PEA once or twice a day is probably a pretty good option. Mm. So those are the ones that I would recommend. And then finally, I think if people don't want to go the supplement route, but they're interested in foods that can help sleep, I think the most compelling evidence backs tart cherry juice consumption. Yeah. And if people consume about 60 milliliters of tart cherry juice, and most of the research looked specifically at Montmorency tart cherries, and if they consume that roughly an hour or so before sleep, then they might fall asleep a little faster and feel like their subjective sleep quality improves too. That's probably largely due to the fact that tart cherries contain phytomelatonin. Melatonin is relatively ubiquitous mm. in living organisms. But the nice thing about tart cherry juice is that it also tends to have a bunch of other positive effects on things like endothelial function and hence blood flow to various organs seems to reduce muscle damage so i think for athletes it's particularly helpful especially yeah. during phases of overreaching when people are trying to really push the envelope and accumulate more higher training loads than they're used to in order to force some adaptations mm -hmm. which can temporarily disrupt sleep it can come into its own and i know we were speaking about that off the call just before we hit record i think in that type of context that's that's a good default option nice. but just just to go back to the start it always depends with the phenotype and i, I recommend those things because i think that they have pretty good safety profiles and people should also consider some of the other effects of the different supplements so i mentioned ashwagandha could support exercise training adaptations if you're an athlete and you're feeling a bit worked up about your sleep then it's probably a really good option yeah. if you are an obese 50 year old and your blood pressure is higher than you'd like it to be and your fasting glucose is too and you're struggling to fall asleep at the start of the night the melatonin will come into its own yeah. and if you're an athlete and you're getting really sore from your training loads and your sleep is fragmenting then i think tart cherry juice is up your alley yeah that's awesome greg and i think um i really like how you kind of couched all that in and that you wouldn't necessarily go to the sleep supplements as your first port of call. And I think that's the, the thing I did, hopefully that people will kind of take away from this is that it's really the, it's like nutrition, it's the behavioral stuff that really makes a difference. And it's not that band-aid kind of supplement that is going to be, you know, a fix-all for you know, anyone with any kind of sleep difficulty. And I found that super interesting actually with regards to, know how you might recommend different supplements for different reasons it makes so much sense but I'd never really thought about it like that before and maybe intuitively I, I might do that but to actually kind of really think about it from that you know what is the root cause of your sleep issue and, and that is how we're going to approach this rather than well most people benefit from this so why don't you try it 
Um, yeah, and, and the one that I didn't mention, which you mentioned, is magnesium. The reason I didn't mention it is just that I don't think that the evidence regarding magnesium and sleep is particularly convincing. Yeah. But that's not to say that I don't think that it's sometimes helpful. And importantly, many adults and kids don't consume enough dietary magnesium. And simply giving people magnesium, especially people who have poor metabolic health yeah. tends to have all sorts of beneficial effects so if you look at the different criteria for metabolic syndrome for instance then magnesium seems to beneficially affect practically all of those mm. in people who are who have the metabolic syndrome so I, I don't see any real downside to supplementing with magnesium and the thing about magnesium is that if you consume in excess then it will just come out the other end yeah. there's, there's no there's no there's no <laughs> real issue there so actually if you yeah, if you've got somebody who's constipated, it can, it can actually be helpful for a different purpose. Yeah, it's super but helpful. If you're, yeah, and, and if, if you're going to supplement it, then there are lots of different forms that you could take. Mm. And I haven't spent enough time looking at them, but I think that magnesium bisglycinate is probably yeah. a good option. And I think magnesium 3 and 8 might better penetrate the brain. So it could yeah. potentially have slightly more potent nootropic and... I, see, I, I saw that but, and I wasn't sure whether that was a reach or whether that was a thing, but I agree with yeah. you. It's, you know, it's, it's certainly up there with regards to it potentially being, you know, what's yeah. better than oxide. Yeah, and most studies use citrate. So if, if you're in doubt, I think supplementing with something like 200 milligrams of magnesium citrate is a great way to go. Nice. Nice. Greg, I feel like I'd sent you a list of things that I would like to talk to you about, and I think I got to the first two of them out of the 18. I'm, um, I'm ridiculously long-winded. No, it is fabulous. You just know a ridiculous amount about a lot of things and in great detail. So um, I, it's been amazing, actually, and I really feel like even though we've only touched on a couple of areas, there's so many practical things that people could take away. And I've I've written notes, which I will and you've mentioned a few things which I think would be super interesting for people to explore further or useful. So I'll pop them in the show notes. Um, but, you know, if there was another time that I could kind of grab with you to talk about, you know, chrononutrition and, and other things around, then I would love to do that in the future. Um, but you've been so super generous. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Lovely. So um, I will enjoy the rest of your day, Greg, in um, in Italy. Fabulous. And I know, don't worry, I know your life isn't all like Francis May and long lunches, um, although that would be nice. Um, and uh, yeah, and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat to me. Thanks, Mickey. Thank you. So team, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Greg Potter as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. For all things related to Greg, check out his website, gregpotterphd.com, where you can find his, most, his latest blog posts, podcasts, recent research, and also how to touch base with him if you feel you could benefit from having a consultation all around your chrononutrition and any sleep and lifestyle behaviors. So next week, we are bringing to you the conversation I had with Dr. Phil Maffetone and Professor Paul Lawson, all around COVID-19 and metabolic health. Until then though, you can catch me at 
Mickey Willardin Nutrition on Facebook, at Mickey Willardin on Instagram and Twitter, or head on over to mickeywillardin.com where you can find my latest recipes, blog posts, and the sign up page to come join my real food community and get a meal plan set for you for healthy eating, weight loss, longevity, or your sport nutrition goals. And that will also give you access to my weekly emails, our members only forum, and the ability to ask your questions, health and nutrition related through our online platform. I'm also available for individual consultations. That's great. Well, until next week, have a fab week.